If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. What are the origins of planes being used in war? How common were dogfights? And were early fighter pilots really the knights of the air? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, The broadcaster, writer and aviation historian Paul Beaver is answering your questions about military flight. As ever with this series, it's a combination of your questions from social media and the internet's top search engine queries. Putting the questions to Paul was Emily Briffitt. What were the origins of aeronautics being used in war? We've got a question from Nicola Sergis on Twitter and Robert Keynes on Facebook about this. It's interesting, isn't it? If you look at any new piece of technology um, which is developed, um, somebody will find a use that you really didn't think uh, would be there. Um, Initially, uh, balloons and kites were used um, for fun. And then somebody said, actually, there's a military advantage here. And Japanese and uh, Chinese sources talk about manned kites being used to lift somebody up uh, to look over the hill. And that's because Military commanders always want to know what's over the hill. And today we've got satellites and UAVs and reconnaissance aircraft and all sorts of good stuff. But if you think back to the 19th century, um, the whole of life was was on 2D. It was just here and now. Um, and you, nobody thought about being um, 100 feet, 200 feet, 1,000 foot up in the air. So now you start to get into the whole thing of national identity and different nations claiming different firsts. So I'm a Brit, so I'm going to be quite Brit about this. Um, 250 years ago, the first manned flight, it, when it was a glider, it was a large glider, flew off a hill, I think in Staffordshire, by an amazing uh, man who's a coal owner, hence had money, uh, called Cayley. That's 250 years of flight. Um, but from the Brit perspective... The first military involvement was 1863, when uh, Henry Coxwell um, showed tethered balloons um, to the British military and said, if you want to see over the hill or you want to be able to spot for your artillery, um, because artillery being an indirect fire weapon fires over things like firing over a hill, then you need a, a, a balloon. And balloons attracted the attention of both the Royal Engineers and the Royal Artillery. And with the various wars in Africa that were going on at the time in the 1880s, the Brits took balloons with them. Um, And these were filled with hydrogen. Um, uh, Some of them were hot air, um, but most of them were filled with hydrogen, which is highly flammable and not really practical in in this period. Um, the first British airship is um, uh, 1907, Nullus uh, Secundus, um, which flies um, really at Farnborough, which is a, a small town about 
60 miles outside London, which is the centre of British um, aviation. The following year, the first heavier than air aircraft flew, British Air Army Aeroplane Number no. 1. Um, and then 1912, the Royal Flying Corps uh, is, is formed. So you've got all of these developments here. The Austrians will tell you, of course, that in 1849, Austria used over 200 hot air balloons um, unmanned, but they sent them off into the wind, or with the wind, I should say, over Venice in a war that most of us have never heard of between the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, and the city of, uh, of Venice. Venice was, um, for four or 500 years, a major power in Europe. Um, today, of course, it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world, but it was a power to be reckoned with um, in the 1840s. Um, and it really isn't... Um, uh, long before everybody is looking at a way of using balloons or kites or the first aeroplanes. So it's a long answer, but I think it's important to understand that as technology develops, um, so people will grab that and they'll use it for war because it is sadly one of mankind's first instincts. When did fixed-wing aircraft st first start being used? It's the First World War comes around about the same time as, as aircraft start to be capable of flying more than 10 miles an hour and for more than 10 feet. Um, and if you look at the development of technology in the, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, it is the First World War that, that galvanises and puts it together. Having said that, we need to do a quick call out here uh, for Lieutenant uh, Gavotti, of uh, the Italian Naval Air Service, who bombed Ottoman Turks in Libya uh, while flying a German-made Torba monoplane. Um, and you can say as well, of course, that uh, both Napoleon um, and the Franco-Prussian War saw the use of hot air balloons. But it wasn't really until the beginning of the 20th century. We had aeroplanes, we had the Wright brothers flying, um, um, and we had uh, the, the British deploying for the first time in August 1914 military aircraft over water, over the, over the Channel to France, that we start to see military aircraft being used. The British saw the military aircraft as being the artillery spotter. Um, the artillery, queen of the battlefield, premier regiment of the British Army, all of those things had recourse to anything that um, would give them the advantage. And uh, this is the first time we actually see aircraft being used. However, let's bring in another country. Let's bring in Serbia, because the first time that military aircraft are used in direct combat um, is in August 1914, right at the very beginning of the war, uh, when a Serbian pilot, um, uh, Captain Tomic, um, bombs um, uh, Austro-Hungarian forces um, in the Balkans. Very quickly after that, 25th of September uh, 1914, um, a Belgian pilot shoots down a German aeroplane, possibly the first aircraft shot down, except that contemporary records now showed that the aircraft actually wasn't shot down, the pilot was just wounded. So then you have to say, who was the first person to actually bring down in a fixed-wing aircraft, another air aircraft. That probably goes to Sergeant France 
of the French um, Aeronautical Corps, who was flying over the lines near Reims, um, the English would call that Reims, um, in the Champagne region, right on the front line, um, and he brought down a German aircraft. The Torpedo is an amazing aeroplane. It's um, it, it's this first thing of, we need to copy what birds do. So the wings are shaped like a bird's wing. They've even got sort of feather-like things at the uh, at the tips, and you get, of course, the very famous twenty um, fifth of August, nineteen fourteen, uh, combat between Roland Garros um, and those. Those of us who like tennis will know uh, that's where the French Open is held, the stadium named uh, for him. He and his observer, Marin, parasol aeroplane, a a single-wing aircraft, um, were able to shoot down uh, uh, and damage, certainly, shoot down, difficult to know, um, a German aircraft. So do we do a call-out for the Serbs or do we do the call-out for the French? And then... Just to complicate things more, um, a Russian pilot rams an Austrian albatross on the 9th of September 1914. They both die, or the crews of both aircraft die. Both aircraft come crashing to earth. Um, you can take your pick, really, as to as to what the first um, area combat was. I can tell you, though, just because we, I think, while we're doing this, we need to to lighten it a bit, the Royal Flying Corps flying to France in August 1914 took gin with them, London gin. When they got to France, they expected the French to have tonic. They didn't. They needed something fizzy, so they added champagne to their gin. That created one of the first cocktails, probably the first cocktail ever made in war, the French 75, and they called it that because... All the time, their sleep was being disturbed by the French 75mm artillery pieces that were firing near the airfield. So it's trivia, it's almost aviation because it's the Royal Flying Corps. And what do you expect from army officers? Makes me want to ask, We, I think there's often the common perception of aviation being quite chivalric, the gentleman of the sky. How true is this perception? I think initially there was very much um, knights of the air. Um, there very much uh, there would be combats uh, over the trenches, um, British officers taking out their Webley pistol, taking shots at um, a German, um, because the main aim was to stop the Germans spotting aircraft reporting for their guns, the fall of shots so they could correct their aim and hit the targets. So you've got the spotting war um, uh, as they develop techniques, we develop counters uh, and vice versa. And, and I think there was a lot of that. There was certainly a lot of, and it happened again in the Second World War. Basically, there are very few people out there who will want to kill um, when there is no advantage in killing. So there were times when when pilots would see the other guy was either wounded or out of ammunition. He wasn't going to affect anything let him go home and live another day. Um, And that, I think, um, became a very public um, uh, perception of of aerial warfare in 1914-15. And then the Germans started to take it seriously. Um, A guy called Baron von Richthofen, we all know as the Red Baron, made famous, of course, by the brilliant Snoopy um, cartoons, 
Um, he takes it dead seriously. He's out there to kill enemy pilots and observers in their aeroplanes and bring them down, both for personal glory and also um, for the war effort for Imperial Germany. So he wants Imperial Germany to win. And we start to find, remembering then that pilots and aircrew in flying machines in the First World War had no parachutes. Um, you are either condemning somebody to about five minutes of knowing they're going to die because the aircraft is falling from the sky, or the aircraft is consumed with fire. I mean, my great uncle flew in um, the end of the First World War and carried a pistol with him, not to shoot anyone, but to shoot himself, should the aircraft catch on fire. He would rather, he said, have had a bullet um, through the head uh, than to have uh, burned to death. So it's a nasty business. We shouldn't get too carried away uh, with knights of the air. There is no doubt there is glory. I mean, and, and we've all, if you're my generation, have read the books by Captain W.E. John about Biggles, uh, Biggles of the Camel Squadron, um, Biggles of 266 Squadron, Biggles flies again. I suppose they're, they're typified by Blackadder goes forth, the fourth series of Blackadder and Captain Flashheart and um, um, take that, um, you know, dirty Bosch. And um, um, you know, if, you're, if you're going to crash, you're going down sausage side. There's a lot of the First World War aviation which is an extension of English public schools in our minds. Um, all of the slang comes um, uh, from that, the whole attitude um, to flying. Um, the Royal Flying Corps and the Royal Naval Air Service, which was created by Winston Churchill in 1914, it's sort of a little bit of a boys' club. Um, and we are talking about men. It, it's, there are no female combat pilots. In fact, there are no female combat pilots really until the Second World War, until the Russians or the Soviets have female combat pilots. But it is, um, yes, it is almost, um, it's very clubbable. Um, there's lots of, of chat. It's a whole, there's a whole social history um, um, to air warfare. When I suppose you're faced with death four or five times a day, it does make you change your attitude to life. So if we had one from Leah Falcon on Instagram saying, when did women start to play a role in air combat and how maybe have they been perceived? The, the first air combat, and by that it's not necessarily dogfights, and we could go into a whole discussion about what's a dogfight. Um, but if you're talking about military operations from the air, um, I think probably it's the black witches of the of Soviet frontal aviation in 1943-44, the sort of Stalingrad-Kursk um, sort of time. So the black witches are flying training biplanes and they're carrying bombs and their job is to keep the Germans awake at night. So they're flying quietly, slowly, and they're just dropping bombs and they're making a noise and... They're keeping the Germans awake, particularly the German aviators, because when you're flying, you need every part of your resource. The Soviets realised that this was a good use of people. They had lots of volunteers. The aircraft they were using were very simple to fly. It didn't take very long to train these, uh, these women to fly the aircraft. But it isn't really um, until you get much later, until, even into the 1990s, that you get women um, uh, learning to fly, um, flying fast jets, being operationally qualified 
um, to fly them. Um, in Britain, for example, it's uh, flying officer Joe Slater is, I think, the first operationally qualified lady to fly uh, with 617, the dam busters in tornadoes. Um, you get today, um, it's still about 10% of, of modern air forces who've got female pilots, um, but uh, there's no bar um, to a female uh, joining um, uh, the military in most countries in the world. But predominantly, um, it's a male business. And if you look at some parts of the world, Latin America, for example, there are the occasional ones, there are occasional test pilots. Of course, in the Second World War, there were the 118 or so female pilots of the air transport auxiliary, the Spitfire girls. Um, but they represent less than 20% of the of the pilots of the delivered aeroplanes. Um, so as we become more equal, diverse, inclusive, um, we start to find um, there are those single ex examples of, of women that flew before in some quite obscure um, air forces. I seem to remember there was somebody flying in one of the African um, wars of the post-colonial um, uh, period. But it's, it's only recently, really, that women have, have become involved. We've been asked on Facebook, how common exactly were dogfights? Again, there's another perception about that being the main form of aviation in war. Yeah, um, dogfights grab the public imagination, don't they? Very Hollywood. Um, a lot of these American documentaries you see are about dogfights. And there's a lot of science behind it. Um, 4v2, 2v2, scissor movements. Um, getting, you know, the, the key to it all is get behind the enemy, get on his tail, shoot him down. Um, there's a, a lot of mystique about it. Some of the most successful pilots didn't dogfight. They just went in, chose a target, fired, flew out again, regrouped, came back in, did passing shoots. If you start to get into a dogfight, it's going to use up your fuel and your ammunition. It's going to make, uh, take a Huge strain on you because you're pulling four, five Gs, um, five times the uh, uh, the weight of uh, gravity as you come around. So if you're 100 kilos, you're weighing 500 kilos. Um, the aeroplane isn't necessarily stressed for it. And what people, I think, don't understand is in the Second World War, for example, we hear, hear and think a lot about Battle Britain dogfights. And there's a dogfight. You see wonderful pictures of contrails at 20,000 feet of aircraft um, in dogfights. Yes, that did happen a lot of the time, but actually the aircraft that were being used, both the Messerschmitts on the German side and the Spitfires and Hurricanes in the Royal Air Force, actually weren't designed for dogfighting. They were designed as bomber destroyers. So if you think back to 1934, uh, when the Spitfire is specified, the main enemy has stopped being France um, and is now Nazi Germany. Hitler comes to power in 1933. Uh, we start to think the Luftwaffe might have been created. It isn't made public until 1935. But German fighters will not reach Britain. Our fighters will not reach Germany. So what we're after are bomber destroyers, which is why Spitfires and Hurricanes have eight machine guns in order to shoot down bomber aircraft. It's only in the Battle of France um, when people suddenly realise, actually, there are going to be uh, dogfights again. The Battle of France is um, not very successful for um, 
uh, the French, the largest air force in the world at the time, nor for the British Expeditionary Force, because uh, the French uh, didn't have an, um, uh, a radar control system. Uh, they, had, they used to have standing patrols of aeroplanes. Well, some of these fighters have about an hour in the air. So you take off, it takes you 20 minutes to get to your patrol position, 20 minutes to fly around. You may not see anybody, 20 minutes to get home before you run out of fuel. Um, so um, it wasn't really dogfights, I suppose, the Battle of Britain. Then you get some big dogfights happening towards the end of the war with long-range American Mustang fighters coming from Italy um, over Austria, Germany, Hungary, those sort of places. Uh, and you start to get uh, the, the dogfights. But most of wartime aggressive fighter aviation, um, air supremacy and air superiority, is about shooting down bombers or re reconnaissance aircraft. You don't dogfight um, with a bomber. Um, you fly at it at 300 yards, you start firing, you stop firing at about 50 yards, you pass a bubble below it, get out of the way, come back up, reform and come back. If it's escorted, you might have to get into a dogfight. But otherwise, no, um, uh, quite frankly, um, you don't um, uh, get into them. So the dogfight in the First World War is a lot more common, and it's flying circus versus flying circus. So Rick Tofen and his, uh, the Red Baron, his Red Mart, Fokker triplanes, and they would appear um, very rarely on our side of the lines, usually on their side of the lines, the German side as opposed to the Allied side. Um, the Brits were always going over, um, taking the war over um, on the other side, which is why we lost so many people to, as, as prisoners of war. But they would be massive formations fighting massive formations. And you get that in some of the, the Hollywood movies, um, um, Hell Divers, I think, is one with um, Errol Flynn. Um, that's that's pretty close to to reality, mainly because many of the pilots who flew the aircraft for the movies had been in the First World War. Let's cycle right the way forward to the 21st century. Are you going to dogfight? No. You're going to have beyond visual range missiles, which can... Um, intercept um, an enemy aircraft beyond visual range, and we're talking of 50 kilometers plus, uh, perhaps 120 kilometers away. Positive radar contact, missile goes, takes about two minutes to get to the target. Um, most of the air fighting that would be done today, and as we've seen in places like Syria, um, we've seen with the Israelis who are um, active a lot of the time, it's missile engagement and it's at range. Rarely do you close um, uh, to use guns. Uh, there probably hasn't been a gun versus gun engagement since Yom Kippur War in 1973 um, or um, the War of the Football Players um, in Central America. That was two World War II types of fighters, the Corsair versus the Mustang um, in in dogfights because one side accused the other side of cheating in a football match, which is a really interesting way um, of settling that, you know. So dogfighting, um, yeah, First World War, it's been in the Second World War. In Korea, Jets, MiG versus, versus Sabre, but actually um, not as widespread as people might think. 
this in a way ties into a question we've had from Johnny Hill on Facebook. He's asked about how common was friendly fire? Do we know the stats of that at all? Oh, friendly fire. Please don't get me started. Well, you are going to get me started on that. There is no such thing as friendly fire. It's all unfriendly if it's coming from you or from the enemy or from um, from whatever. Um, so we tend to talk about blue on blue. And the reason it's blue is that blue is the friendly colour in a war game. In a war game, the other side's always red. Um, we're always blue. Um, so blue on blue engagements. Oh, yeah, there are so many. Um, are there proper stats? I'm sure somebody's done a PhD on it somewhere. And in some uh, archive, there will be some really good statistics. It happens a lot more in the Second World War than people think. So I can take you to about day three of the Second World War, 1939, September, um, over uh, the, the Channel Estuary, the Battle of Barking Creek. Um, actually, nowhere near Barking Creek, mainly over Ipswich, but um, for the popular media of the day, Barking, Barking Creek was it. Radar, and the Brits have got radar for the first time, picks up an aeroplane that's coming in from the direction of Germany. So they scramble, not a section of fighters, four, but a squadron of fighters, 12, um, to intercept it. Everybody wants to be the first person to shoot down a German aeroplane in the Second World War. As they get closer, to discover it's a British aircraft that's lost. I think it's a coastal command, Blenheim. So what they then do is they recover, uh, as it's called, the, the intercepting squadron. They, ask, they tell them to turn around and land. Radar then sees these aircraft returning and thinks it's a massive raid. So then they scramble lots of aeroplanes. And so Hornchurch and Biggin Hill and Kenley and all these fighter bases around London believe the first raid is coming from Germany. Everybody expected Germany to bomb London on day one of the war because that's the, that was the popular myth um, of, uh, of aerial bombardment. Um, and as a result, there's a dogfight between Spitfires and Hurricanes. It isn't much of a dogfight, actually, because the Hurricanes realise that they're Spitfires. The two Spitfire pilots involved don't realise that they're Hurricanes, and they shoot down, sadly kill uh, one aircraft. So RAF Fighter Command st starts the war with a negative score sheet, having shot down one of its own aeroplanes. What does this do? Well, you always learn lessons in war. They changed the radar systems. They made the radar work better. They changed reporting. They changed the way in which we directed fighters um, towards the enemy. Remembering that, uh, what, a year later in the Battle of Britain, um, outnumbered um, sometimes as many as 10, 20, 30, or 40 to 1, uh, we needed to be able to direct aircraft to the right place to intercept German raids. So it's very much a case uh, that um, uh, blue on blue allows us to uh, learn, um, learn lessons. But there are lots of blue on blues. There's, there's both, in both Gulf Wars, um, the first British casualties are caused by American aircraft shooting up British convoys because the Americans are badly trained in recognition of, of friendly vehicles. That then changes the whole way in which um, we do things. You don't just learn what the enemy vehicles look like, you learn what your own look like. And so 
it's less likely we're going to have friendly uh, aircraft being intercepted by another friendly aircraft, a blue on blue, because of modern systems, because of, and it came very quickly in the Battle of Britain, identification friend or foe, little um, uh, system that binged um, uh, what's called a secondary surveillance radar trace um, that um, shows up on the radar and it shows you to be friendly when it's switched on, when it's switched on. Um, and of course, the first thing you do is you know that uh, in war, the enemy probably knows that frequency too, so you switch it off. So, you know, there are all sorts of things. War is complicated, it's cloudy, it's difficult. Um, and at the end of the day, um, there are going to be blue-on-blue engagements forever. Um, there is a famous one um, in the 1980s, um, a NATO war game in Germany. Um, and I think if I've got this right, it's a Larbrook-based Jaguar is shot down by a Wildenrat-based Phantom that for some obscure reason, for part of the exercise, they scrambled the quick reaction alert fighters. They scrambled this aircraft, this Phantom, and it, of course it had live weapons on. And I think that they, they didn't intercept and they just didn't think. And they pressed the button and a sidewinder launched and it shot down um, uh, a Jaguar. That's the last time uh, the Royal Air Force had shot down um, an aircraft in air combat. It was one of its own. Um, before then, it was 1948. So to answer the question succinctly, there are lots of blue-on-blue -blue engagements. They will continue in war because war is murky and difficult. But please never call them friendly fire. Daniel Wigmore on Facebook has asked, have military aircraft always carried insignias? If not, how did earlier pilots actually tell each other apart? Yeah, uh, uh, that's a really good question, Daniel. I think the, um, the answer... Um, is you want to know who the enemy is. It's like the colours of uniforms on the ground. I mean, the First World War, um, the French wore blue tunics and red trousers um, to tell them apart from the grey of the Germans. So naturally, it went to aeroplanes. Um, and before there was an international convention on carrying of military insignia, um, people... Uh, the, the Royal Flying Corps, for example, painted Union flags on the sides of their aeroplanes. Um, and you, can, you should also be able to tell the enemy because um, of the aircraft they fly, although in the, the modern era of Russia versus Ukraine, they're both flying the same sorts of aircraft. So aircraft recognition used to be a good way of doing it. But yes, they all carry, um, all military aircraft now are required by international law to carry insignia. Um, uh, we tend to call them roundels. It's a French expression because the French put a, the cockade that was used in the French Revolution, the, the blue, white and red um, cockade on the side of the aircraft. Um, we put the opposite, uh, uh, red, white and blue, um, on ours and marked our tails with similar colours. The French put the French flag on their tails. The Germans had uh, the Maltese cross, the Iron Cross, um, which, of course, is their, their gallantry medal as well as their national insignia. Um, and other countries follow suit. You do it so you can be seen and to be seen to be, um, to be the other side or friendly to your own forces. It nicely links with, um, with blue on blue. Um, but today we also have scaled down markings. So you, if you look, 
go to an air show um, and you'll see Royal Air Force aircraft have, have got much, um, uh, much smaller. Um, they are much duller markings. Um, and a lot of this came, interestingly, in the Second World War in the war in the Pacific. And the red in the middle of a, a Royal Air Force roundel, so you've got blue, white, and red. Um, uh, American pilots thought that was the red sun, uh, the Hiromaru of, of Japan. So the Brits had to start flying with white and blue uh, markings. And you get to the stage where today everybody has got their sort of national markings. I mean, the Royal Air Force even have an aircraft with the Union flag on its tail, which is used for government transport. Uh, But you also get tactical markings. So as long as they're carrying it somewhere, um, it's legal. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, my great uncle, back in 1918-19, flew in something called um, a Sidka suit. Um, he was flying in southern Russia, where it was incredibly cold. Um, as you go up 1,000 feet, the temperature drops 2 degrees Celsius. So when you're flying at 10,000 feet, it's pretty cold. Um, a Sidka suit is made out of Kapok rubber. Um, and it makes you look like a, a bit of a teddy bear, really. But it works. To follow on from what you've said, there's a popular search query I wanted to ask you about, which is how have different wars affected developments in the field of aviation? Oh, wow, this is a PhD subject in its own right. We could spend the day talking about this. It isn't just aviation. Um, war accelerates technology across the piece, whether it's, uh, it's submarines or ships or rifles or um, sites for rifles, radar systems. Um, in aviation specifically, there's no doubt that the First World War accelerated um, aviation. So if you look at the B2C that... Um, the Royal Flying Corps took to uh, uh, France in 1914, compare it with the SE-5A and the Bristol Fighter of 1918. There's not only a, an increase in speed of about 100 miles an hour, um, there's an increase in, in uh, range, there's an increase in endurance, the engines are far more reliable, they don't suddenly stop when you're on the other side of the, uh, of the lines. It's an, an effective weapon system. In fact, the the, the Bristol fighter goes, the F-2B goes on in Royal Air Force service um, into the late 1920s. Um, and you start to see all sorts of developments happening in the 20s and 30s. The Schneider Trophy races um, are there to get speed, certainly. But it, it's there, really, the fact that the Royal Air Force um, forms a high-speed flight the fact that the Italians and the Americans and the French have military pilots working on it. It's all about technology. It's all about technology demonstrators. Um, it's, it's going from biplanes to monoplanes. It's going from, from guns that are, are fired over the wings or even sometimes handheld um, to guns in the wings. Um, it's about increasing the fuel, using fuel tanks differently, making fuel tanks are resistant to uh, enemy shells. It's about making engines reliable. The Rolls-Royce Merlin, for example, comes from a racing engine, which has to be reliable. And today, what's the parallel? Well, F1 racing, Grand Prix racing, 
uh, adds tremendously to our knowledge um, for, for ordinary motor cars. Um, or the, 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 the space um, shots, the Saturn shots, the Apollo shots, aids amazingly um, to everyday life. Teflon for cooking comes from the 1960s and the Apollo program. So all of these things in adversity or where there is money, and money, there's always money in war, adds to technology uh, moving forward. Ironically, uh, we, we haven't really had huge developments in the last 20 or 30 years, um, maybe because the Cold War was, was over for a while, um, that we haven't. I can see there being more and more developments now, and probably developments that we won't get to know about because it would be in electronic warfare and, uh, and all of those things. But war tends to drive technology, and it drives it towards being better and cheaper and easier. So you spoke about a couple of the changes we may be seen. Were there ever any hesitations to make these transitions? The, the thing about aviation is it's driven by people. And people have a tendency to look um, back and they feel comfortable in doing something. So um, when the, the Spitfire was first conceived, it was only going to have two, not eight guns, because two guns worked in the First World War. So why shouldn't it work in the Second World War or the next war that was coming? Nobody, nobody is really sure if there's a war or not. Um, when um, the Royal Air Force put a specification out for a new fighter aircraft, um, lots of people went for, for monoplanes with single-wing aircraft. And the Air Force didn't really feel comfortable with that, so it went for a biplane, the Gloucester Gladiator. Um, they did allow an enclosed cockpit um, to keep the pilot out of the weather. Um, or um, it's like, um, well, we've got parachutes for people who are in, um, in, in balloons to, to jump out should their balloon be attacked because balloons filled with hydrogen catch fire. So, but what about putting them into, uh, giving them to pilots? Oh, you can't give them to pilots because pilots won't press home their attack. They'll, they'll bail out rather than, you know, lack of moral fibre. Um, so you get all sorts of ridiculous um, prejudices which, which lead to this. I mean, it took a while um, for the Royal Air Force, for example, um, to go from biplane uh, to monoplane. And the reason was biplanes actually can turn quicker. Um, and so uh, in air combat, yes, it was probably an advantage, but they don't fly as fast because there's more drag. So you lose that. Um, the Spitfire was nearly stopped um, in 1938 um, after the first... 310 had been ordered, um, and, and eventually over 22,000 were, um, because the air ministry decided in Britain that it would be a, probably what we needed was a longer-range fighter um, with two engines. So um, let's stop working on Spitfire and get a supermarine down at Southampton to build long-range fighters instead. Um, thank goodness that um, somebody counteracted that, uh, that note of, uh, of July 1938, because um, you know, the Battle of Britain would have been totally different without the Spitfire. The Spitfire didn't win the, the Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain wouldn't have been won if we hadn't have had 19 squadrons of Spitfires. So you can you know, look at it like that. So it's a good question. You know, technology, um, you know, just think how, how 
long it's taking for people to adopt electric cars. You have to change the way you do things. Well, it's exactly the same with aviation. So the Americans decide they want the B-17 with a crew of seven, eight, nine people on board. It only carries 2,000 pounds of bombs to Berlin. The Brits, for a while, um, are using the Mosquito. Two men, unarmed aircraft, they fly to Berlin with 2,000 pounds of bombs. The loss rate on the B-17 was 50%. On the, mus- on the Mosquito was 7%. It strikes me that the B-17s were as brave and courageous as the young men were inside. It was not the right way around. But technology was, or rather uh, doctrine was, you put as many machine guns in the aircraft to defend them. It doesn't matter if they only carry 2,000 pounds of bombs rather than 12 or 16,000 pounds that were being carried by Lancasters because it's about making the political statement. So you, politics comes into it. It isn't just technology. Were there any particular manufacturers, perhaps, that dominated production in military aviation? I could give you a list of, of manufacturers, um, but actually the question really should be, are there designers who dominate the technologies? People uh, like Sidney Cam at Hawker, um, uh, some of the American, Japanese, Willie Messerschmitt, um, Pradel, um, Lipic in Germany, the Horton brothers who come out with a design that today is flying and the Americans call it the B-2 stealth bomber. Um, uh, Von Braun, who comes out with rocket technologies, which led to the, um, uh, the Saturn uh, uh, program. Um, great engineers like, uh, and I don't really rate uh, R.J. Mitchell Um, of Supermarine as a designer. He's an engineer. He's a brilliant engineer who puts a brilliant team together. The key to aircraft development in the 20s and 30s, which is when it makes its greatest leaps forward, um, is to have teams of people. And it's all about about people. And and we're slowly understanding that this isn't just a boys' game. And as you go through into jets, what you find is that, that there are these these great designers who, um, who span biplanes to jets, um, who understand aeronautics, they understand the maths behind it, they understand design. So it's not manufacturers. Um, it's, there's a whole list of, of, of designers. Um, they're not by any means Western European or, or American. Uh, there are Russian great designers like Tupolev, for example, Bigoyan, um, they're all coming up with new ideas as well. Uh, and today, well, they're still, they're still around, but it's teamwork. You don't hear so much about it. Was it understood at the time how much taking war into the air would change things? Oh, that's a good question. Was it understood at the time? No, not really. It just uh, I think uh, Robert seemed like um, a natural progression. Um, the war on the ground... 1915-16 was getting bogged down in, in, in the Western Front, and this is really where it all comes from, the, the battle over France in the First World War. Um, it's gone to trench warfare. How can we change that? Um, there must be a different way of doing it. We've got to stop the artillery from being so accurate, so we get in the air to do that. And then we, we, you know, we need to counter the spotter aircraft, and then you need combat, and then perhaps you need... Why don't you attack the Germans 
um, tank formations um, or the German infantry formations or the resupply lines? Or why don't you bomb uh, the Zeppelin factory at Friedrichshaven on Lake Constance or um, attack um, the shipping, uh, the German shipping in Zeebrugge um, in Belgium? And the answer to that is that, that it's a natural progression. I don't think anyone sat back and said, um, oh, wow, this is going to change things. Um, it seemed to be the natural place. Um, we moved into the third dimension. Um, that's war on another front. And of course, in the Second World War, we talk about the bomber raids on Germany as being an early second front. Um, the first front is, the, uh, is the, in the east where the Soviets are battling the Germans, losing initially. Um, they wanted a second front, which would be a landing in, in France or the low countries to, to divide the German forces. Well, the Brits were not ready for that. The Americans were not ready for that. Um, we didn't have the technology or the people trained. So the second front became Bomber Command and the United States Army Air Force, 8th Air Force based in Britain, um, attacking uh, cities. So, yes, I suppose I've never really thought of it as um, uh, that somebody actually understood what was going on. I think they just realised they had to do it. We've had a few questions as well about the civilian experience. Um, there was a couple on Instagram, but someone's asked about how did the establishment of military aviation affect the civilian experience of war? Well, of course, the first um, bombing raid against a city um, is... It's possible that that early um, attack by the Austrians against the Ottoman Turks in, uh, in Libya did kill civilians. Nobody's quite sure. The, the Turks claim that uh, a, um, uh, a hospital had been bombed. Um, but um, the first major bombing raid um, against civilians is, is the 13th of June 1917, when 20 Gotha bombers fly across the North Sea and bomb London. Um, the first people, I think, are killed in King's Lynn uh, by a bombing raid. Um, Zeppelin airships are used. Um, uh, the Germans did try a campaign um, against Britain, um, which led to fighter aircraft being withdrawn from France and based in Essex and Kent to try and defeat them. Actually, in the long term, it, it led to the creation of the Royal Air Force, the world's first independent air force, because neither the army or the navy, the war office or the admiralty, which controlled the other two aircraft, could, were capable, it seemed, of understanding the needs for the air defence of Great Britain. And Jan Smuts, the um, uh, South African president, the, the, the Boer leader in the Boer War before the First World War, um, was asked by Churchill to, to look at how better we could use aircraft. Um, Churchill comes out of this um, really strongly in, in being somebody who didn't understand technology but understood the uses of technology. And Jan Smuts, a, a guerrilla fighter, a Boer farmer, comes out of this as being a man of huge imagination. So he can see that an independent air force to defend a country and perhaps to do bombing uh, operations will be the way forward. You then cycle forward. Um, 1936, uh, the Luftwaffe, uh, acting as the Condor Legion, uh, bombs Guernica in, um, in, in Spain. 
a, a location of no military significance, but a huge terror weapon. It really frightens the Spanish. You then get the Japanese bombing with chemical weapons, Shanghai in 1937, um, huge morale factor, very little military capability. You get the Second World War, the Blitz on London, which is about trying to defeat the morale of London. Um, we then take it back. The Allies take it back to Germany and bomb Hamburg and Lübeck and Dortmund and, and the Ruhr and Berlin and Dresden and Leipzig and all these places. The civilian experience of air warfare, probably in the Second World War, starts certainly with the Poles being attacked by, um, by the Luftwaffe. But for the British, it starts about 10 minutes after Chamberlain's fav famous speech on the radio at 11 o'clock on the 3rd of, of September, where he says you know, Britain is um, uh, a state of war uh, now exists between uh, Germany and the United Kingdom. Um, because the first thing that happened was the air raid sirens went off, and everyone thought, we're going to get blitzed. So, yeah, um, you just have to look at what's going on in Ukraine. I'm afraid civilians are in the front line. They have been, I think you could argue, since 1917. It, it's, it's interesting, the, um, the defences uh, uh, of a country are not just um, aircraft. You know, the aerial defence of, of London, the air defence of Great Britain, is not just about fighter command, um, getting Spitfires and Hurricanes, Defiance and Blenheims um, into the air. Um, there's also a whole panoply. What... The reason the Brits win the Battle of Britain is very simple. First of all, the whole nation is behind that tip of the spearhead in fighter command. But secondly, and, and importantly, in 1936, Hugh Dowding develops an integrated air defence system. And that meant having layers of defences. So the way in which you would do it is you had radar, then called radio uh, detection and ranging, um, uh, or RDF, radio di direction finding, um, really in its infancy um, in, in the uh, late 1930s, proved so absolutely vital in the Battle of Britain. Um, you have that um, and you create stations called chain home, um, high and low, depending on the altitude, um, in places like Ventnor on the Isle of Wight or Dover. Um, they are um, uh, at places where they can see out to sea. They can detect hostile aircraft, or at least aircraft that we don't know what they are. You then have a, an observer call um, of, of usually retired uh, military who are spotting for the aircraft, recognising them, telephoning back to uh, the headquarters at Bentley Priory, the Stanmore um, filter room, all the information that, that's coming in. Um, there's then a, um, a line of... Um, uh, anti-aircraft guns, and then around targets, there are barrage balloons. These are helium uh, or hydrogen normally filled balloons run by the army, like um, uh, the air defense guns, the anti-aircraft artillery. And you put balloons up to stop aircraft from dive bombing or from coming in too low. So you can put them up at, at uh, five, six, seven thousand feet. That puts them then into an area where the guns work better. And then above that, you've got the fighters. So you've got to have zones. When you get to the V1 raids in, in June 1944, and you start getting these, these 
what are effectively cruise missiles coming in from occupied Europe, um, uh, the terror weapons, the doodlebugs. You have this layered defence has been then really um, uh, honed so that you have places where fighters can shoot them down. They get too close, then the guns um, um, shoot them, and then they've they've uh, uh, they've got barrage balloons, which actually serve to to um, uh, be a a physical trap more than anything else. So all of things in when it comes to air defence, it's not just having fighters going up into the air. It's got to be controlled. You've got to have it layered and you've got to know what's happening. You use the filter room at, at Stanmore to tell the, the groups. So 11 Group based at uh, Uxbridge, which is defending London and the home counties, um, tells them what to expect. It puts on the plot. We've all seen the, the pictures of people moving little... Um, little counters across a map. Uh, from there, the sector stations are informed by group. The sector stations decide which airfield and which squadrons to get airborne. Um, and it works. And on the 15th of September, when the Germans think they're going to destroy the Royal Air Force in the air and all the aircraft factories and all the airfields, we get every aeroplane airborne, probably about 400. They go to the right place and they stop the Germans. They demoralise the Germans completely. And this is done, yes, of course, they're very brave people uh, flying aeroplanes, um, and they're very clever people with radar and whatever, but it is all about being integrated and having an air defence system that works. We've spoken about the civilian experience. Could we dive into talking about the experience of the pilots of the crew? Are there any distinctions between different types of pilots, different crew members for different types of aircraft? Maybe whether this is in their skills or perhaps physical attributes they had to have? I, well, you, when you talk about pilot skills, whatever, of course, if you talk to a, an ex-military pilot like me, I'm an army pilot, I'd say, well, of course, I am one of the elite. The Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force have their pilots as well. Um, you know, and, and they're jolly good chaps and all that. Um, and so you get into all of these um, these sort of areas of um, uh, of personal bravado, but no. To be to be honest, um, uh, if you look at let's take the Battle of Britain as an example, you have regular pilots, you have volunteer reserve pilots who've been trained to fly in the late thirties, uh, but don't are called up in nineteen thirty nine and nineteen forty to fly, and you have the auxiliary squadrons, um, which are county based. Um, and which uh, pilots and ground crew train and work together and have been doing it since the 1920s. So um, they're all trained in different ways. They all work together. They're all trained to the same standard, and that's important. Some have more experience than others. Some are more likely to do it by the book than others. And then you get, as you get through the war, we need more and more conscripts, and we become a citizen air force, and people are are brought in who have never thought about being in the Royal Air Force until the war, and, and they're trained. Um, and Britain has the luxury of having an empire, so we're training our pilots in southern Rhodesia and South Africa and Bahamas in America. We do a deal with the Americans before America enters the war um, to, uh, to train our air crew there. Um, the Germans don't have that luxury. Uh, the Germans don't have enough fuel, they don't have enough space, uh, and they start running out of people. Um, and 
you then say, well, what about, what about the Italians? There's a lot of jokes about Italian tanks and having, you know, four of reverse gears and one forward in case the enemy attacked from the rear. Um, this is just complete rubbish. The Italians are um, uh, as competent as anybody, um, and some of their pilots um, are absolutely outstanding. But at the end of the day, it depends on the political motivation you've got. Um, if you're fighting for your for your homeland, etc., and it depends on also, I think, in terms of what you're, how you're, how you're equipped. So not just the aeroplane, but you know, are you do you wear the right the right clothes? Have you got the right stuff? Have you got life jackets that work? All this takes takes place. I mean, my great uncle, back in 1918-19, flew in something called um, a Sidka suit. Um, he was flying in southern Russia where it was incredibly cold. Um, as you go up 1,000 feet, the temperature drops two degrees Celsius. So when you're flying at 10,000 feet, it's hardly cold. Um, a Sidcut seat is made out of Kapok rubber, um, and it makes you look like a, a bit of a teddy bear, really. But it works. It's really warm. You need warm hands and warm feet. So you start getting electric heating systems put in for on bombers. Never really worked. Um, you get them. Uh, you get people having to wear G trousers to keep their blood um, up in their vital organs, brain in particular, but also their their heart. Um, when pulling steep manoeuvres, the first time that comes in is June 1944, with naval aviators flying sea fires over um, the beaches of Normandy, spotting for naval guns. Um, so you've got all these sort of developments that that that, that come along today. Um, Aircrew are superbly equipped with um, every nation with uh, G suits, so they can they can pull. The air aircraft are usually limited to about nine, twelve G before they they break up. Um, so um, without a G suit, you can probably take five or six. Some people can go to seven with a G suit, probably eight. Um, uh, you've got helmets uh, that uh, noise attenuate, uh, that keep you safe. Um, uh, you have ejection seats. If you leave the aircraft, an ejection seat costs almost as much as the aeroplane engine. Um, if you have to abandon the aircraft, the ejection seat takes you out of the aircraft, out of harm's way, and deploys you, and a raft, perhaps, if you need one. It has a sensor that detects water. Um, it sets off an alarm. Um, it, there are all sorts of things. Pilots and other aircrew are valuable. They, they cost about eight to ten million pounds to train today. Um, they have to be good. Um, I think we worry about eyesight. Too many people now grow up using screens. There's nothing worse for your eyesight than using a screen. Um, I think the the changes that are coming. We need to have wi women. Um, flying because we need that demographic 50. What's the point of excluding 50% of the population? Um, so there are all sorts of things that are happening. Um, so the whole evolution of the air crew, and it's mainly pilots, is now about to change again because we're talking about uncrewed aircraft. We're talking about the pilots being on the ground. We're talking about them being in porter cabins in Colorado or Waddington in Lincolnshire or, or wherever, and fighting a war in Afghanistan and using 
remotely piloted aerial systems or uncrewed systems. The Navy are going to have them for, uh, on their ships. The Army are trying desperately to understand how to use them properly. We've seen them used in the war between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia over Nagorno-Karabakh. We've seen them being used in, in, Ukraine, in the defense of Ukraine. The whole thing is moving again. We're on the cusp of a new revolution of thinking flying machines using artificial intelligence and machine learning. It still requires a man or woman, a crew person. This is a new exciting era. Well, actually, in answering that, you've answered another question we've had from Canesworth Horticulture on Instagram, who was asking about heated flying suits. Again, from Daniel Wigmore on Facebook, he said, how does the Royal Air Force interact with other military elements, other military areas? And he's obviously read about rivalries and about the problems of, between Montgomery and Conningham in the desert um, in the Second World War. Um, there's always um, a bit of rivalry. There's professional rivalry, good-spirited professional rivalry. You know, I'm an army pilot. Um, I get a nosebleed flying over 250 feet. And, you know, because anyway, I don't want to be up there. That's where jets are. Um, so I'm a helicopter pilot. So there's that sort of rivalry. Um, and for a long time, there was a real issue um, between in Britain, between the Independent Air Force and the other two uh, services, the Royal Navy and the, and the British Army. And it was mainly about money. It's always about money in defence. Uh, the main enemy of the British Armed Forces is Her Majesty's Treasury. It's not any perception of, of Russia or, or uh, Iran or anybody else. Um, the Treasury doesn't like spending money um, on, on flashy toys. And there is always an argument uh, between them. When you get to the battlefield, that changes completely. Just look at the successes of Army aviation working with Royal Air Force, um, support helicopters in uh, Afghanistan and, uh, uh, and in Iraq. Something called the Airland Doctrine, um, about how you work together. Um, RAF uh, units, same for US Air Force and the French Air Force and the, the Luftwaffe in Germany. You have army officers based in units. They are part of the integration. And you have Air Force officers who liaise um, uh, with ground formations. Uh, the Navy has its own aviators, of course, in the fleet air arm. Um, they work together. And yes, there is rivalry. There shouldn't be as much rivalry as there is. There are doctrinal differences. There are even background differences. If you look at the, the army in Britain, it's not homogeneous. You don't join the army you join a regiment. Um, and there's, you know, there's even pretty good rivalry between regiments. I mean, you know, who would want to be a cavalry officer in a tank? <laughs> um, so you have all of that, uh, that sort of stuff. But yeah, actually, um, it, 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 it does work. Airland integration work. The rivalries are there. Um, some of them are false. Some of them are quite real. It's about professionalism at the end of the day. But usually it's about money. So, yeah, um, I just think I'm good because I'm a helicopter pilot. OK, then, I think I'm going to ask my final question for you. And it's from Alex Plotkin on Twitter, who said, do the countries that have built up the strongest air forces actually have anything in common? Oh, wow. What a really interesting question. Um, today's air forces um, are built on the premise of of 
Article 25 of the United Nations Charter, which is the article which gives you uh, the right to self-defense. Um, for those in the West, um, it's also Article 5 of the NATO Charter of 1948, which is um, attack on one is attack on all. Um, so NATO integrates um, its, uh, its armed forces, and the air is no exception to that. So um, the strongest air forces are not necessarily the largest air forces. They're usually professional. They usually involve high technology. They usually um, are those air forces which have um, a, uh, a military ethos, that have a strong moral code, that believe in the, in the, um, in the rule of law. Why are, are the Western Air Forces so good because they exercise together, because they train properly, they're professional, and there's no corruption. That was Paul Beaver, an aviation historian, broadcaster and writer. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt.